This episode of the Card Insiders podcast is brought to you by Omnisend. Omnisend is a powerful marketing automation platform specifically built for e-commerce businesses. With easy-to-use visual automation workflows, customer segmentation, 24-7 support, multiple channels including SMS, and built-in integrations with key e-commerce platforms such as Shopify and Shopify Plus, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, and Magento, Omnisend enables marketers to effectively grow their business without costing a fortune. Who says marketing automation has to be expensive? Learn more about how Omnisend can help you maximize your data and grow your sales at Omnisend.com. Welcome, everyone, to the Card Insiders Podcast. I am your host, Greg Zakowitz, and this is season one of the podcast where I'm speaking with CEOs, founders, and marketing executives about the challenges of growing a business, lessons learned, and how they adapt to the constantly changing retail and consumer landscape. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to kindly ask you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five stars only. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or are interested in sharing your email marketing or e-commerce story, we'd love to hear from you as well. Feel free to email us at podcast at omnisend.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. I'd like to welcome to the show today, the Chief Marketing Officer of Newton Baby, Aaron Zaga. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Excited to talk. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. Um, so, Aaron, let's do the uh, the basic baselines for everything just to kind of set the stage for the audience here. So can you briefly tell us a little bit about who Newton Baby is, types of products you guys sell, how long you've been around, kind of that whole uh, background, if you would. Sure. So Newton Baby is five years old. It was founded by my boss, the CEO, Michael Rothbard, who had been in the sleep industry his whole career. He had started and sold another sleep company, made mattress toppers about 15, 20 years ago. And was struggling because he had two small kids, uh, twins actually, and they weren't sleeping well. And he kind of started investigating his crib mattress and figured out that most crib mattresses were made of basically plastic and very hard and not at all breathable. So babies often overheated when they slept and it, it just wasn't really a great sleeping surface or environment. And he figured if anyone could figure out how to improve upon sleep and sleep products, his background should probably help him do that. So he started looking around at, at different types of potential constructions for crib mattresses and found this really innovative material out of Japan, which we now call woven air. It basically looks like ramen noodles before you submerge them in water. Uh, and by volume, it's actually 90% air and the rest is made with a food grade polymer. And he realized it would be a perfect kind of material for a crib mattress because not only is it completely breathable, you can literally breathe straight through the mattress, but it's also washable, which if anyone has kids, they're utterly familiar with how non-foolproof diapers can be. And the fact that every other crib mattress on the market isn't washable is baffling and gross. So he launched Newton around this uh, really innovative crib mattress five years ago. It's the only truly breathable crib mattress. We've had third-party independent testing done, and it's uh, 97% more breathable than pretty much any other crib mattress on the market. Over that time, we've grown quite a bit, and uh, you know, initially, we had quite a bit of uh, um, press from both uh, physicians and the regular press and the media, and kind of grown like crazy ever since. We're now probably the leading luxury crib mattress on the market. Definitely the top rated anywhere online, top rated at Amazon, Bye Bye Baby. And um, yeah, it's been a pretty good ride. I came on as the full-time CMO about a year and a half ago. Very nice. And I 
to relate, I have two kids as well, and they're both out of cribs now. But I remember touching one of the mattresses at first go around, right? And you just kind of, you know, the feel if you've ever felt a, a traditional crib mattress. And I remember thinking that, I'm like, how do the kids sleep on this? I'm like, other oh, kids, they have no idea, right? But uh, to your point, apparently they don't do it as well. A typical customer that you guys work with, obviously you're probably looking at new parents, expecting parents, things like that, but I'm sure there's different nuances to it. Can you briefly describe what your typical customer is? Yeah, so our customer is basically a pregnant woman or someone who's just given birth. So kind of evenly split between um, the second and third trimesters and just post-birth. and Generally, and certainly when I took over, our customer was someone who did more research because our crib mattress is expensive and it's very differentiated. And if you don't do the research, you're just going to go buy the bestseller on Amazon, which costs $60. Um, ours costs $300. And if you don't do the research to figure out why, what is truly important to crib mattress, you're, you're never going to buy our mattress. So then our customer was, and the traditional thought was our customer is someone affluent, you know, probably in the bigger cities or the coastal cities. One thing that I've worked really hard to do is expand that customer base. And so now, even though we completely over-index affluent, in terms of the number of crib mattresses we actually sell, we probably sell more to uh, middle income and, and even lower to some degree. Our typical customer has kind of changed a bit. And, I, you know, I think that's, that's something that I'd be happy to touch on um, kind of later in the podcast, too, which is from a prospecting perspective, you don't always just want to think about who your current customer is. You want to think about how you can expand your market, too. And so that's that's something that we focus on quite a bit. Let's go ahead and jump into that now if we can, just at least touch on it. And then we can always segue back into it later. But when you when you came on, you were looking to expand the market. Was it a natural expansion that you found that was maybe being overlooked or maybe not overlooked, but just not focused on enough? Or was it something that you were able to identify and say, you know what, we can push beyond the affluent customer here because of X, Y, Z. Kind of walk us through the genesis of how you expanded your market, if you could. Yeah, so so it actually came about in part by accident, as all these things do. I was having a debate with a, with a vendor who was trying to encourage us to market to less affluent. And A, we didn't really have a great handle on our demographics at that point. And, it, you know, especially with respect to income, it's kind of hard to get. It, it's not immediately available, except kind of in AdWords. You know, GA doesn't have it. Facebook sort of kind of has it because you can see if people own a house or not, but that's not a great measure either. One thing we did was implement Quantcast to get really good detailed demographic data. But the thing ultimately that we did is just try marketing to the less affluent. And it turned out that it works pretty well, very well, actually. And so we started seeing in our data that our customer base had really expanded fully across the country and that there was no real geo advantage anymore. From at least from a ROAS basis, obviously, the, you know, clicks in New York City are going to be more expensive than clicks in the middle of Iowa. And so from a ROAS basis, it was basically even for us. So when you started going, I say downstream, but a little down market a little bit, did you find that the same marketing tactics work that it did for the affluent crowd? Or did you have to do, whether it's more storytelling or more social proof or whatever you did there? Did you have to do a better job of convincing less affluent people to spend more money on kind of, quote unquote, a commodity product for a baby? 
Definitely. So, you know, I think historically having a bunch of doctors recommend our brand was, you know, enough for people who didn't do the full research themselves, but wanted to make sure that at least it was an endorsed product by the medical community or by experts or by sleep coaches. And so it was relatively easy for us, you know, between the independent scientific testing and, you know, some doctor's quotes on Facebook ads to sell the mattress to the natural customer. For the others, we had to get a little more creative and make sure that we weren't just showing scientific charts, but we were telling the story in a more relatable, understandable way to make sure that we got to the mass market a little better. And so we did that primarily through more video ads and paid social and influencer especially. Uh, I was just going to ask about which channels you were able to tell that story on, because if I go to the website and I'm on it right now, right, you have a lot of social proof on there, which I'm a huge advocate of social proof. So is the website primarily the storytelling driver on there, or are you able to effectively tell that via whether it's email or paid social? You mentioned paid social a minute ago, right? Hard to tell that story on a paid search ad, right? Just the way it is, but yeah. Besides like star reviews, you can't do it on a, on a paid search ad at all. And, and that's not what people are looking for on paid search. I, I mean, if anything, they're Googling like Newton baby reviews and then they just go to Amazon to see our Amazon reviews. But but um, it's funny because I still don't think we have enough social proof on our site. <laughs> but I was talking to another CMO yesterday and they're like, oh, your site has so much social proof. So I, I guess it's all relative. But but yeah, so the, the primary channels were really paid social videos uh, and influencer marketing, I would say. Okay. Are you guys doing storytelling through email marketing at all, whether it be a welcome series or a band like Carter? Is it pretty much? Yeah. So, yeah, we, I mean, we have like the full, you know, welcome drip campaign and there is quite a bit of social proof in there. Yeah. I'd actually like to add more there too, though. Come to think of it. <laughs> Slap it on, man. How can you, how can it go wrong? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> With expanding customer base as well, I mean, we always talk about customer retention, but you're going to expand over. But this is a question I kind of had queued up for later in the conversation. But since we're on the topic, I'm going to bring it up now. When it comes to customer retention, right? So you're you're focused on acquiring, but people are only pregnant for so long. They are only have kids who are sleeping in cribs for so long. Eventually, they outgrow them. And they may or may not have another kid. So how have you guys dealt with the challenge of customer retention? Because you might not be able to sell a crib mattress, but have you guys taken any unique steps to kind of expand your base just from a retention standpoint? Yeah, so it's obviously a tricky thing. By virtue of our product being washable, it also makes it really good to be able to be handed down to future kids. So by designing a great product, we kind of reduced our LTV. <laughs> so the only thing that we can really do is roll out new ancillary products. But you know, right now, given our current product set, which is expanded to sheets and swaddles and mattress pads. It's still pretty limited to people having babies, but our future product roadmap does include more products for later in the baby having and kid raising process. So those are all in development still, and hopefully within the next six months, we'll be launching the first few of those. Very nice. And have you guys played around with uh, kind of expanding? You know, I always think about, you know, the grandparents always want to see the kids or take the kids overnight. And sometimes they live locally, sometimes they don't. But have you guys had any luck or, or tested into expanding into getting like those ancillary purchases from, say, the grandparents or someone for cribs at their place? Yeah, so that, it's an interesting point you raise. And we do see that quite a bit where some of our customers will buy two or even three, one for them, one for 
each set of grandparents that the kid stays at overnight. We love those people. Thank you guys. <laughs> um, and it's interesting from a marketing perspective because, you know, our customer traditionally and certainly the decision maker is the pregnant mom, sometimes the dad too, but mostly the mom. But we don't limit our age targeting exactly because of that point. Sometimes it is a grandparent who does the research. And oftentimes it's the grandparents buying the big durable goods, the big high ticket items on registries. Quite often the grandparent will say, oh, I'll buy your nursery furniture or I'll buy your crib, et cetera. And so we want to make sure that we're not excluding those people from being targeted because we find something like 10 to 20% of the time they're the purchasers. Now, some of that's registry business, but some of it is, you know, them being the deciding factor as well. So would you say guys are buying the mattresses about 1% of the time? <laughs> I, think, I think that's also more like 5 to 10%. It's, it's definitely a minority, though. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. It's funny. I have a newfound interest in advertising on Reddit. We haven't done it before. But the, the goal would be, you know, Reddit skews a little more male. Um, not everywhere, but on a lot of the boards. And so I, I want to make sure that we are targeting the guys who are doing the research. Very good. Uh, yeah, I would imagine Reddit being a good place where people are doing research on that as well, right? There's probably uh, subreddits and stuff on that. So very cool. So you've been on board for about a year and a half, I think you said, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, and I've been advising the company for a year before that. So I've been basically involved for two and a half years now. Okay. So part of your job, and you've talked about expanding from different demographics and things like that, is obviously growing the brand, which it seems like you're doing a pretty good job of so far. If you look back at kind of the last two and a half years where you've been interacting with a brand, what would you say like maybe the number one or two biggest challenges you've had to overcome during that time? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because the marketing stack that I inherited was very different from what I wanted to be running. And so we really changed our entire marketing strategy completely. The person who had been running it before came from an affiliate and display background. They had been trying a lot of display and programmatic, and those channels do not work almost at all for a higher end product that you have to tell a story for and kind of explain. It's just tough to convey that in, dis in a static display ad. Maybe some of the new video formats it, it would work on, but it, it wasn't working that well. Uh, and they were doing no paid social. And so having to migrate basically our entire marketing channel prioritization was certainly a challenge and hire all new vendors and agencies. That was a big challenge. And then the other piece was in my prior role, I was running e-commerce for Teleflora's international business. And buying flowers is pretty much the exact inverse opposite <laughs> from buying a crib mattress. One's basically a check the box, and the other literally saves the baby's life if you know they roll over and suffocations risk. So it was just basically the challenge of learning a whole new product and way of marketing was a great and rewarding and interesting challenge, but certainly one nonetheless. So I find that really interesting because uh, not only that flowers will die in about seven to 10 days too, so you always have to replace those, but <laughs> yeah. you know, you mentioned that the person doing the e-commerce before had a, a different skill set with their background, which is, you find that a lot of places, but you also came from a different background, just from a product side where, you know, you said it's complete inverse of, of what it was, but you came in and you immediately, you somewhat immediately, I'll just put words in your mouth, uh, recognize that the current way of doing things inside Newton Baby was 
um, not going to be as su- successful from you. So I'm interested your mindset there when you came from a different way of thinking, knowing that, yeah, this needs to change without really knowing the market as well. Does that make sense how I frame that up? Yeah, I think part of it was really kind of just common sense. But, you know, I've always been really involved in industry stuff and talking to peers and going to the conferences. And, you know, I love talking to other marketers and CMOs about what's working for them. And so I was fortunate that I had enough experience and exposure to relevant product categories. And perhaps even more importantly, right around that time, I had my daughter. Um, and so I was kind of in the exact mindset of a customer. Um, and, you know, the confluence of those two things kind of made it pretty obvious to me where we kind of needed to go and that we needed to tell a bit of more of a story and kind of educate the customer and rethink how they approach a purchase of, of a product like ours. And then, you know, frankly, there was a lot that I thought would work and didn't. So just constant iteration and testing were really the most important factors in kind of getting up to speed and making sure that we rationalize our channel mix. As a former consultant, I always used to tell my clients, this is a consultant's cop-out, but I would tell you to test it. So yeah, you should always test everything. I'm curious on some of those things that didn't work because everyone, regardless of what job they're in, is going to have an idea that's just not going to pan out and that's acceptable, right? That's just the way the world is. Yeah. Are there any one or two that you could think off the top of your head where you're like, man, what was I thinking when I did that? I think the most obvious one that comes to mind was native ads. And I can't really even point to why they didn't work at all, but I've spoken to other brands that don't really work at all for them either. I don't have a great answer why. I think it's kind of because they're sort of in the same boat as display where we're not one of the categories that really lends itself to the clickbaity type 10 things, you know, 10 reasons your baby could suffocate in its bed. We weren't going to run that ad, you know, we try to stay more positive. Maybe an image of a baby is clickbaity enough. Maybe it's not, but I, I don't know if it was the targeting wasn't sophisticated enough or what, but we just, we just couldn't get it done. And it's funny because we run display ads now that kind of look like native and are all above the fold and they work really well. But we use an agency that's really performance driven and relies a lot on targeting and data. And, you know, even that one hasn't scaled massively. So I don't, I don't really have a great example of why other than I don't think the categories have fit. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I appreciate being honest and sharing that too. That's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, how about something that keeps you up at night? So I, I'm assuming it's, it's the lack of a full size bed produced by you guys. But if you look at the either the vertical you're in or the industry, uh, e-commerce as a whole, and let's, I, I want to tuck COVID aside, but what's the one thing that kind of keeps you up as a CMO? Yeah. I mean, at this point, paid social is by far and away our biggest channel, and that's Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest to a little bit of a lesser degree. The rise of TikTok definitely keeps me up. Our demo is loosely 25 to 40. And during COVID, Everyone I know who's 25 to 40, well, not everyone, but I would say 50 to 75% of them love TikTok and have been using it extensively. I love TikTok too, frankly, on a personal basis. And I probably spend more time on it than, than Facebook or Instagram these days. Oh, we got to dig into that. Yeah. But the challenge is TikTok, by way of being awesome, TikTok isn't great for advertising. You know, they won't show your ads if 
people don't like them and watch them. And the formats generally aren't like, this is an amazing crib mattress. You know, it's completely breathable. Babies don't suffocate, like, et cetera. They're engaging, they're interesting, they're entertaining above all else. And so as we've worked to scale up TikTok in a category where, you know, the product requires some explanation, we're really kind of struggling to figure out how to tell the story in a manner that would resonate with TikTok, with people who are on TikTok looking to be entertained. And it's going to require all new creative for sure. So with you guys struggling with it, maybe the question is just the volume of people on there. But is that the reason that you guys are actually focused on TikTok? It's just the, the sheer volume of people on there? Yeah. I mean, when people start getting jobs again and going back to work and get busy with real life again, they're going to have limited time. And so if they're spending more time on TikTok and less on Instagram, then that poses a challenge for us. And making sure that we're reaching them on TikTok in the way that they want to be reached with something that doesn't look like a traditional video ad or influencer review. I, I don't know. I think we're just not there yet. Yeah. From a personal TikTok side, are you posting like music videos and stuff like that? Or do you more, do you more monitor? No, I, don't, I haven't posted anything yet. I'm just a consumer, not a producer. I haven't even downloaded the app yet. I have this innate desire to do it, but I'm scared someone's tracking me in some fashion. Really? Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> well, that's how I am with everything else. I'm like, whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I I just don't care if people in wherever know that I like to watch, you know, videos of guys jumping off roofs into swimming pools. I just don't care. Uh, maybe I'll do it this weekend when I get bored. So I, It's really entertaining. I thoroughly encourage you to do it. I'm scared it's going to take away from my time. But like you said, everyone's got time in their hands now. So It is. I, I find it much more addictive in an interesting way than Instagram. So I, you could probably relate to this. Uh, we were talking about kids beforehand before we, we start recording, but I have two kids. And I remember after the first kid, I used to say to my wife, I, I would go, what did I do with all my free time before I had kids? And then I had a second kid and I'm like, what did I do with all my free time before I had, when I only had one kid? I fear like this TikTok will be like that too. I'll get on, I'm like, what did I do with my free time before TikTok? You know? Yeah, I will. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Uh, all right. So to shift back to marketing a little bit, you know, kind of put a marketing person in your staff on notice, but you're a CMO, you're kind of looking at high level things. If you drop yourself into either entry level or kind of mid-level in your company in the marketing department, what would you expect to be the first thing that you guys would tackle either from a low hanging fruit standpoint or something like another initiative for some opportunity of growth? What would, what would ideally that person do? I like having the the younger people on the team do the social, especially the organic social. They tend to understand what works better and be more familiar with it than people of, of my age. And so making sure that they're, that our marketing voice and our organic posts are in the right voice and tone and relevant to the platform they're working on. So that's always something that I, I like having the more junior people focus on. Besides that, I also like kind of assigning them to the emerging channels like TikTok, for example, where we're all learning as a team together. And ideally, it helps them build up a core competency and skill in something that no one really knows much about. So it's it's not like I could have a senior person do it. That's not even really an option because no one's familiar with it, right? So giving someone responsibility for a channel that I think might be important and empowering them to learn it and master it is, I think, a net benefit both to their careers and to us as an organization. 
I think that's really cool because I was having a conversation with someone last week about this. And, and one of the things, it was just about a like career level standpoint, but one of the challenges with people going into the workforce is you join an organization and a lot of times you're scared to either be outspoken or propose ideas because you're the new person on staff and everyone's been doing it for a while and you're scared to be wrong and then you start thinking that they made the wrong hire, right? So there's all these internal conversations that a young person has with themselves. I think that's a really cool thing with like you said, the emerging markets or emerging platforms where no one really knows. So you can't really be wrong, right? You could be wrong and miss the boat, but at least your idea is out there and valid. So I, I like the fact you said that. I think it's something important that a lot of executives can really think about or even managers think about when they have people underneath them. Yeah. This goes into leadership and management type things. But I mean, you're a CMO, you're a leader of a team. You've had director positions in the past and, and run things that way. From a leadership or, or management standpoint, like what's a lesson you would give to someone who's either new in the management or looking to become a manager, either as far as how you handle people or a career perspective? Like what are, what, are, what are those things you might recommend to that person? You know, I think there's probably three or four things. One, one just because it's top of mind, we're actually hiring quite a bit right now. And the one thing that I think I've learned in, over the course of my career with the people that I've hired is it probably makes more sense to hire based on attitude and intelligence and ability to do the work than it does on experience or or like you know past um, past direct experience that's that's relevant. Anyone who's smart and hardworking and and willing can figure out whatever you want them to do. And so even I'd much rather hire like a young, hungry person who's really smart and, and willing to do anything to, to run our email than someone who's, you know, been running it for 10 years, but is kind of a mediocre marketer, you know, it's kind of stuck in that position, even though they, they can get up to speed on day one. I think for the organization, it's better to have the first choice. And the second thing I, I would say is fire fast. You're not doing anyone a service by keeping someone on who you think isn't just isn't going to get there or is causing problems. And the third thing is attitude really matters. And this kind of goes with the fire fast, which is it's really tough to change someone who has a negative attitude. I mean, unless you haven't taken the time to understand why they're negative and, and why they're being difficult, which is always the first thing. Generally, when someone has a negative attitude, my first assumption is that it's my fault. Maybe I'm just neurotic, but... Chances are, as their boss, it is my fault. But if you can't address it and fix it, um, there's no point in keeping a toxic person on. They're much better to fire fast. Very good. And if you think about yourself as a CMO, for anyone who might be aspiring to become a CMO, what would you pinpoint as like the most critical skill that a CMO needs? Oh, it's such a tough one. I know. There are two that really come to mind. They don't go hand in hand. They're, they're probably opposites. But if you can kind of get some mastery of each one, then you're golden. I think analytical rigor uh, and statistics, frankly, are one thing that are just completely and utterly crucial. Without them, you really can't make budget allocation decisions, which I would argue is probably your number one responsibility as a CMO, like figuring out what is actually working and allocating dollars towards that as much as you can. That, I mean, that is digital marketing in a nutshell these days. But then the flip side is you're not going to get stuff working if you don't get the creative right. And so having the creativity to come up with creative that might work 
and kind of think from a customer's perspective and then give your designers the guidance they need to really do interesting creative that's differentiated, that resonates, that makes people click, that gets them to remember your Pinterest pin as they're scrolling through 500,000 other ones. Those two things I would say are the most important. And obviously the nerdy math side typically doesn't go hand in hand with the creative, pretty imagery side. So if you don't have one or the other, make sure someone on your team does and that you lean on them and work as a team in a, in a really fluid manner. Very good. And one more business question for you before I, uh, we cut and run here. So Aaron, if we look at it, we're talking to other uh, e-commerce merchants who are listening today and they are maybe smaller or they're still struggling to get over, say, that two-year hump of launching business or maybe they just crossed it and they're looking to expand. If you could offer a piece of advice for them about how to maybe expand their own business, I mean, it's going to be dependent on what vertical they're in. But like one of these telltale things like, hey, if you want to grow your business, here's something you should really either hone in on, know the numbers for, blah, 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 whatever it might be. What advice would you give to them to help them successfully grow? That's a really tough one. I, I do a lot of you know, like e-commerce advisory work and I advise startups from time to time. And it, it's so tough primarily because of exactly what you mentioned, which is it's so industry and niche dependent. And people give what I'll call dumb advice to others all the time, which is like, oh, SEO is the most important. You should focus on SEO because it's free. Or, oh, paid search is always the best because those people are definitely looking for products. None of those are true and hard and fast rules. It totally depends on you know what your industry you're in, your competitive space, your conversion rates, frankly, and what's needed from a storytelling perspective, whether you're competing on price or whether you're competing on lifestyle and branding. So it really is industry and niche specific. And figuring out what works in your industry niche is really tough for a small company without a big budget because you probably can't spend 10 grand on seven different channels experimenting in a given month. So I think the way to really do it best is talk to other people in your industry that aren't directly competitive and see what works for them. And, uh, you know, I, I think the only real way to do that is via networking and conferences. I would say almost all of my new ideas come from doing those things and talking to peers. You know, we're, we're all on the mailing list of a million different vendors who have people talking about whatever channel they work in. And sometimes those are useful. So go ahead and sign up for them. You know, some of the big ones, especially that work across multiple channels, the big agencies have interesting ones, but really try to hone in on the case studies from your vertical and see what it is. I mean, like a paid search agency might have a testimonial or case study from someone who makes umbrellas, but they're raving about how they went from a 1X ROAS to a 2X ROAS. And you know, if that's wildly unprofitable for you, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> if you need a 4X ROAS, it's not going to be relevant for you. So really talking to other people in your industry one-on-one -on -one where you can kind of share data and compare notes and have conversations about what vendors are working or what channels really work and get an understanding of what they're actually experiencing in terms of costs or returns. You know, I think that's by far the best way to figure out what to test first. And that's all 
that's all we're really talking about is what, what do you test first? Test everything, but if you have a limited budget, you have to prioritize it. And so talk to other people about which to test first. Great advice. And, you know, I've been I've been working in the SaaS industry for the last eight plus years. I'm not in sales, but I used to go to these conferences and I used to love networking there. But there was the one thing with, with your competitors, like the salespeople never wanted to talk to each other, right? But you're always in the same room, even for like these cocktail hours and stuff. I used to love talking to people, my competitors. And most of those guys on that team don't want to talk to you, but every now and then you find someone and those conversations are the absolute best because you don't really care about sharing stuff, right? As long as it's not trade secrets, but you, you certainly, you get tons of insights from that. So I love the fact that you said that. I think it doesn't have to be in just e-commerce. It could be really any type of business as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk to marketing people at like every other baby company I can talk to, except maybe the other crib mattress manufacturers. None of us are really all that competitive, even though we're in the exact same industry targeting the same customer, but we sell them different kind of stuff. And you can always find corollaries like that in whatever industry you're in. I think. Absolutely. All right. Two real quick questions for you here. Not, uh, not really marketing related here whatsoever, but I don't know if you're a reader or audio listener or just a, a casual reader of news, but either what's either your favorite marketing book or business book or recently liked book. And if you're not much of a reader, any podcasts you particularly listen to that you like or uh, industry websites, what would you say some of your tops are? I'm going to completely blank on the title of the book, but there's a book about telling your brand story that was really awesome. I'll ping it to you later. If you have show notes, you can include it. Um, yeah, we'll throw it in there. For podcasts, I really like Recode with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. Um, they kind of talk about tech in general, and I really like that one. There are quite a few marketing podcasts that have sprung up, and I think all of them are pretty useful. But it really depends on who's talking and how much specifics they're willing to discuss. So that varies quite a bit. And then in terms of like those vendor email lists I've spoken spoke about recently, I think Tenuity usually does a pretty good job. And I like their their material quite a bit. Uh, and AdLucence as well. Very good. All right, Aaron, last one for you today. Uh, one meal for the rest of your life. Which one are you choosing? One meal? Yep. Oh, it's Mexican for sure. Yeah. I'm an LA taco guy. It has to be tacos. <laughs> Very good. Aaron, any questions for me today? I think that's about it. All right, man. We'll have uh we'll have contact info for either you if you're comfortable with it, or at least the uh for nude and baby in the episode description. But how about audio verbally wise? If someone wants to get a hold of either you or the company, what's the best way for them to reach you guys? LinkedIn for me is definitely the best way. I always check my messages. And as a company, just go to our site and either chat or hit the contact. Very good. And web URL, newtonbaby.com. Newtonbaby.com. You got it. Aaron, thanks so much for your time today. To everyone listening, thank you for yours. If you have any questions, comments, or interested in sharing your e-commerce or email marketing story, again, please email us at podcast at omnisun.com. Please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star only. Until next time, have a great day and be kind to one another.